Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I was traveling for a little bit, so, but it's wonderful to be together uh, worshiping with you and now sharing from God's Word. Now, maybe it's just me, have, but have you ever noticed that it's easier to start something than it is to finish something? Yes. It's very easy to have an idea. I'm going to do this. I'm going to achieve this. And then maybe something happens and it doesn't quite come together the way you think. There's many examples we can give about this that we can see in other areas. I enjoy football, so the first thing that jumped to my mind was an example from football. One of the best football teams there ever was, was, and this pains me as an Eagles fan to say this, but was the 2007 New England Patriots. They were a great team. They won every single one of their games, 18 straight games. And then they lost the Super Bowl. And so when you get there, it was really great. They started really well, and then it didn't quite work out at the end. <laughs> now, now, they did get a little bit of, I don't know, kind of uh, cosmic payback. Uh, a few years later in Super Bowl 51, they were losing to the Atlanta Falcons 28-3 to in the Super Bowl, and they came back. And so the Falcons started really well, weren't able to finish. But it's easy to make fun of football teams. We can see some of this in our own lives, whether it's something serious or something less so. Perhaps you start to do something. You find a book and you say, oh, this is a good book. I heard somebody recommend this. And you start it. And then things happen. You're like, I, I really enjoy it. I really mean to get back to it. And before you know it, you have three books with bookmarks in it somewhere. And you have no desire to go back to that. I just moved well, my wife and I into a new house, and when you move, you start the process of unpacking boxes, and sometimes you'll open a box, and you'll put something there, but it'll remind you of something else you have to do, and next thing you know, you're nowhere closer to finishing that box than you were. But if we're followers of Christ, Christians, there's, there's a more important question, a more important angle we should think about this from. We should ask ourselves, what do I need to do to persevere in what God has called me to do. Because God has called us to live for Him. If we are alive and we have breath, then our purpose is to live for the Lord's honor and glory, to tell others about Him. But just like those examples I gave, we can often start something really well and not finish well. So how can we persevere through the final push and be used by God to achieve a victory for His kingdom? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today in God's Word. We're going to learn from the book of Nehemiah what we need for that final push. We'll discover what we need is to discern, to prioritize, to obey God, and to pray. If we do that, we'll find that sweet victory is accomplished by God. We also will learn, though, that true victory is still to come. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 6 and seven. If you'd like to use that blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 472. It will also be on the screen, but feel free to use that Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that one that's there home with you. Once you're there in Nehemiah, we're going to be in chapter six. I would ask you, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's word and then follow along as I read our passage today. I'm not going to read all of Nehemiah 6 and 7. I'm just going to read the, about the first 16 verses of chapter 6. So Nehemiah chapter 6. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 1. 
Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim or the villages in the plains of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Verse 5, in the same way Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me, but this time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. It will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And now verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you, be able to learn about you. Thank you that you call us to know you. Thank you that you call us, that you save us through your son. And if you've saved us, you've given us the task of living for you. Lord, teach us what we need for the final push of this life. Teach us to discern truth to prioritize your interest, God, to obey what you say, and to pray and depend on you. Thank you that you are the one who accomplishes sweet victory. We long for the true victory that is still to come. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray.
Amen. You may be seated. Let's remind ourselves a little about where we are here in Scripture. It's been a few weeks. We're in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These books are talking about God's people. They had been away in exile. They'd been taken out of the promised land. They were in exile slavery in Babylon, and then a new empire comes in, the Persians, and allow them to come back to the promised land. And gradually, they come back. In the book of Nehemiah, the people are back. They've rebuilt a temple, but their capital city of Jerusalem is undefended. It doesn't have a wall. And this is a shame on God's name and his people. And this man, Nehemiah, comes. He is committed to rebuilding this wall so that the people would be able to worship and praise God in safety. It's very hard, though. He experiences a lot of opposition. The enemies of God's people who live around them do not want this to succeed. Even some of those who claim to be a part of God's people are against what Nehemiah is doing. And now in this chapter, we're coming to the very end of this work, and we're going to see if Nehemiah and the Israelites can endure. How will they survive this final push, this final push? And it also teaches us what we need to succeed. If you're using the outline that was handed out to you, the first blanks are what we need is to discern, to discern, to prioritize, and to pray. If we're going to succeed, we need to discern, prioritize, and pray. We see these in verses 1 through 9. Now, I just read those as we read through the passage, so I'm not going to read them again, but let's talk about it. Verse 1 tells us that the work on the wall is going really well. There are no breaches, no gaps, no breaks left in it. All that is left is to finish the gates, install the massive doors on the wall. And this really concerns the enemies of God's people who live around them. Because once this wall is complete, then the only option they have to influence God's people is they're going to have to attack the city, besiege it, surround it. And that that would be much more difficult than now. Their influence over the Jews is almost lost. And since the wall's almost finished, they start to get desperate. And they decide, we need to trick Nehemiah. We need to stop this now. And so two of them, Sanballat and Geshem, they send a request to Nehemiah. They say, we want to meet with you at Hakafirim, or some translations have the villages of the plains of Ono. This was a ways away. It would have been a neutral site about 25 miles away where Nehemiah would have been unprotected. And he knows this. He realizes they only want to do this so that they can harm him. He can smell a scheme or a plot. To quote the sage, wise words of that Star Wars character, Admiral Akbar, it's a trap, is what they realized. Or, or if you prefer a pun, uh, Chuck Swindoll said, Nehemiah said, oh no to oh no. Whichever way you want to think about it and, and works for you. He realized this was not a good decision to make. He knew that these men were opposed to the work he was doing and were trying to stop him. And he won't let them stop him now. That's what he sends to them. He says in verse 3, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He is carrying on a great project and he would not let anything divert his time away from the Lord's work. Yes, he also suspected it was a trap, but he knew he was doing what God had called him to do. He was prioritizing God's work over this vague request. They've tried to stop him many times. Maybe they genuinely want to talk, but at this point, he knows God's work is more important. 
The pastor James Hamilton said, Nehemiah understood that the work he was called to do was so significant that he had no time for petty distractions. And this is quite a statement about Nehemiah. If we remember his history, he was a Persian official. He had a close relationship with the king over all Persia, really an emperor over a vast territory. He worked right for him, had influence with him, but that, Nehemiah didn't consider that to be a great work. Instead, he left that. He came to Jerusalem, was working on the walls of God's city, and he said, this is a great work. It's more important than anything else I'm doing. He valued God's work over his own money, his own status, his own influence, and in giving himself a place that was of comfort for himself. He valued what God was doing. Now, for us, there are many distractions that can come into our lives to push us away from what God calls us to do. We probably all have one in our pockets right now that can often cause a distraction. It is plenty to keep us away from knowing God and growing in our relationship with him. There's entertainment things we can pursue, hobbies, perhaps even our work or our job, which God has given us to do. He values work, but we can let that rise in influence above what God has called us to do. Instead, we should prioritize the great work of God that he wants to do in and through our lives. Jesus talked about this. In Matthew 6, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Nehemiah had the right priorities. He saw that God's work comes first, not what these others are talking about. He's also practicing some skills of discernment here, though. He's figuring out what they're doing. Discernment is a word we don't use very often. It just means seeking to understand someone's motives, reading between the lines, figuring out what's actually going on. Scripture talks about this in several places. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us not to be conformed to this world. Instead, we're to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And if that happens by testing we may, there it is, discern, we may know, understand, figure out what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Nehemiah knew if he focused on God, he could see, no, this is what God wants me to do. Paul would write about it a bit later in the book of Philippians. He said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And if you have those things, love, knowledge, discernment, you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ when Christ returns. We see a lot of wisdom in how Nehemiah is practicing discernment in this passage. He knew to exercise extreme caution when dealing with someone who's misrepresented God before. If someone's misrepresented the truth and lied to you, then it's wise to use extreme caution caution. We should discern and think what someone's motives are. Now, this idea of discernment can be twisted a bit too far. I'd call it in an unbiblical way. It can bring us into a place where we question everyone's motives. We think everyone else is wrong and only we understand what God is talking about. We should exercise it with a balance between love and grace and this desire for truth. These things are not opposed to one another. They work together to honor God. 
Now, Nehemiah's enemies, they were very persistent. They, verse 4 tells us they sent to him four times in this way. They were really tempting him to try to abandon this work, but he was not intimidated. He stood firm. It actually reminded me of something I've experienced now that since I've moved in the house, we've been getting a lot of ads for different types of insurance. And, and each of them, they'll be first notice, second notice, and then we've gotten like five that say final notice. I, I wish they'd actually mean it, but they keep sending it and saying, final notice, final notice. Well, that, that, that's the idea I get here. Nehemiah's getting this letter. This is your first notice, Nehemiah. This is your second. This is your final one. No, this, this is the final. This is the final, final notice. But he stood firm. He was not budging. So these enemies try a new tactic in verse 5. A servant comes this time, but he has an open, an unsealed letter. This is a public letter. They probably posted it in the town square to put extra pressure on Nehemiah. And this letter is full of dangerous rumors and lies in an attempt to create fear and doubt among God's people. It's in verses 6 and 7. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, all the nations. People are saying, Nehemiah, that this is going on. Now, this is just a false rumor and an accusation. They they have no real sources for it. That knowledge, the, the argument, people are saying, is not very persuasive, knowing a real source is. These writers are accusing them of plotting to revolt. They want to rebel against the king. That's why you're building the city. You're going to build up the walls so you can hide and you can rebel. They say, Nehemiah, you're out for yourself. You want to be declared king. In fact, they even say, you've got prophets that you've hired who are going to say that you are the new king. Now, it it is common for some for leaders to receive accusations like this. And unfortunately, it's common for some leaders to abuse their positions in this way. Some definitely do that, but not all of them do that. And that's not what Nehemiah is doing. These people really want to meet with him, most likely to kill him and stop the work on the wall. This letter they send, it sounds friendly-ish. The idea is people are saying this, so I I want to help you. Let's meet together. But it's, it's really a threat that's designed to hurt. It's a veiled threat. As verse 7 says, now the king will hear of these reports. They're they're using a bit of irony, sarcasm there. They're saying, if you don't come and talk to us, we're going to have to tell the king that this is what you are doing. We'll talk if you don't do what we want. And we have to acknowledge that from a certain point of view, we could see how this argument might be believable. The Jews are building up the walls. It's possible they could use that to rebel. Nehemiah is a very successful leader. He's getting a lot done very quickly. But we've been down this road before. The enemies around the Jewish people have sent letters, said things like this before. When we were back in the book of Ezra a few months ago, in Ezra chapter 4, they sent a letter to the king. They said, be it known to the king, the Jews who came up from you to us, they have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls, repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. The royal revenue will be impaired. You will lose money if they finish. So they said it back then, and when Nehemiah started to build the wall, these very same people said the same thing. Back in Nehemiah chapter 2, 
You'll recognize these names. I've just read them. When Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us, despised us, and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They've been accusing him of this since the beginning, so he's not moved by their threat this time. In fact, he replies in verse 8 with just a very simple denial. I love how blunt he is in verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Saying none of this is happening, you are making all of this up. He flat out denies the accusation. Now he may have hoped for a Jewish Messiah and king, but he was loyal to the Persian king. And Nehemiah knew this. And so he just knew and trusted in the truth. He sent that and he got right back to work. Now, if somebody accused us of something wrong, there's nothing wrong with taking time to defend ourselves. But if we're accused of something, it's often better to ignore it if we can. Nehemiah knew that the truth was good enough. He said, it's not true. He got back to work. He didn't need to spend time defending himself. He knew that God's truth would prevail. Again, Pastor Hamilton said, persistence in the truth will shine the light on falsehoods and deceit. If we stay in the truth, it will eventually reveal what is false and deceptive. Beyond this, Nehemiah says in verse 9 that he had discerned, he had figured out their motive. They wanted to frighten God's people because if the people were afraid, they would not be committed to finishing the work on the wall. He sees this is just a last-ditch effort to stop us from finishing what God has called us to do and to discourage us. And so instead of arguing with his opponents, sending a lot of letters back and forth, combating all these rumors against him, instead of arguing with them, Nehemiah took time to pray. The very end of verse 9, he offers a simple prayer. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. This was Nehemiah's usual response when he was in trouble. When situations got challenging, he resorted to prayer, not arguing or trying to defend himself. His reputation had been attacked, yes, but he chose not to respond. This is something that we can probably learn about. I think sometimes as Christians, sometimes as people in general, I think now, we have very thin skin, and we should should develop God-centered, thick skin and be less offended. People say things, less distracted when insults come. And instead, when insults come, we should speak truth and continue serving God. Our reputation before others is important. And I'm not saying we should go ruin our reputation, but living for God, serving his reputation is more important than defending our own reputation. The choices between spending time obeying God or spending time defending my reputation, we should choose obeying God. Nehemiah had his priorities straight. He knew God's work is more important than me wasting time on these people trying to stop me. God's reputation is more important than mine. While they're telling lies, he continued to work on the wall. He prays, He asked God to strengthen his hands, give him a greater determination for the work. He discerned, he had his priorities straight, and he prayed. But beyond that, there's some other things that he did. We read it in the next few verses. So in verses 10 through 14, we discover that we also need to obey and pray. 
Not only discern and have the right priorities and pray, but obey. And you say, Pastor, you pray on there twice. Yeah, because it's that important. And also because Nehemiah does it twice in this passage. We need to obey and pray. Let's listen to verses 10 through 14 again, and we'll see this. Verse 10 says, Now I went in, when I went into the house of a man named Shemaiah, son of Delilah, son of Mehetabel, he was confined to his home. He said to me, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple. They are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, the, the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. When given a choice to sin, Nehemiah chose to obey and trust God, and he directed his concerns in prayer to the Lord. Here he's having a conversation with a man named Shemaiah, who's probably a priest or a priest who was known as a prophet. He would tell people what God was saying. For some reason, he's confined to his home. Maybe he's using it as a sign. Nehemiah, I'm confined to my home. You need to hide yourself. Perhaps he'd been banned from the temple. Maybe he was a secret informer. Regardless, he tells Nehemiah, God is saying you need to hide in the temple. You need to close the doors because people are coming to kill you. There's just two problems with this. Nehemiah knows that if he did that, on the one hand, that would be cowardly, and number two, that would be disobedient to God. And so he refuses the offer. He knew he'd be living in fear if he ran away from this danger. And he also knew that he wasn't allowed in the temple because he was not a priest. And he knew God's word. Earlier in the Old Testament, in God's law, in the book of Numbers, it says, you shall appoint Aaron and his sons. They shall be priests. They shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Nehemiah knew he wasn't allowed to go hide in the temple. Now, there's nothing wrong with he felt a little afraid, had the emotion of fear. Our emotions come and go. But the problem is if he let that fear control him, he would make decisions against God's word. Good leaders do not run from danger. They lead and serve as an example. And he knew the temple was not a place for him to run for safety. It was a place to worship and serve God. As he says in verse 12, Nehemiah understood, he realized, he discerned, we've been using that word, he saw that God had not sent this prophet, but he had been hired by Nehemiah's enemies. He was pretending to be a prophet from God. He was acting as a false prophet. And while Nehemiah knew that he could not go to the temple, he probably also knew that God does not look kindly on those who misrepresent him. The book of Ezekiel, God tells the prophet, you son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people, those who prophesy out of their own hearts. You prophesy against them. The New Testament tells us, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits 
to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And Nehemiah knew this man is misrepresenting what God says, and I will not trust him. He figured out that Shemaiah had been hired to intimidate Nehemiah, to make him afraid so that he would sin. The enemies had attacked his reputation in an open letter, but if Nehemiah did this, if he ran and hid in the temple, then his reputation would actually be ruined and they would be proven right. He would be disobeying God by hiding in the temple. His enemies would have the opportunity to mock him, taunt him, stop the work on the wall of Jerusalem. Nehemiah knew that letting the fear of what other people say or do, if we let that fear control us, that's the opposite of faith in God. Scripture sometimes calls it the fear of man, being afraid of people and what they can do to us. That is the opposite of faith and trust in God. And since it's the opposite of faith and trust, that means it's a sin to let what other people might do to us control us. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That's a really ironic verse because it's saying in our concern to be safe from what people may do to us, we actually find ourselves in a snare. Whereas we're not concerned with what people may do, we find ourselves in a place of safety. Friends, there may be other people who seem like they have a lot of control over your life and you may be tempted to fear them, but none of them holds more power over your life than God does. Value his opinion more than theirs and trust him. This fear of man can keep you from saying or doing what you know to be right and true. It can keep you from sharing God's truth with others. What will they say? What will they do if I tell them about my faith, my relationship with God? Do not let that fear control you. God speaks to this in the book of Isaiah. God says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, you have a relationship with me. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, at how they mock you, because for the moth will eat them up like a garment, the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Nehemiah knew this was true. He believed it. The last time we were in Nehemiah, or two times ago, in chapter 4, he sees enemies around him. He looked, he arose, he said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And trusting in him, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah has that same faith now in our text. And so in verse 14, he prays that God would remember these people that God would remember those who are working against God's people, who are trying to intimidate them and make them afraid. He's really asking God to show his justice, to bring judgment on those who oppose him. This is a wise choice by Nehemiah. He is going to continue to work. He says, God, these people are trying to stop me. They're trying to stop you. I'll let you take care of them. I've got a job to do. He's trusting God to bring justice. He lists uh, names of some people we don't know, we haven't heard of yet. It's the idea that there's a whole lot of people trying to stop him. He says, God, you know all these people trying to stop me. I'm going to get back to work. 
He would pray this way a bit later in chapter 13 as well, particularly with priests like Shemaiah. He says, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood, the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. They valued their, their money, their pockets more than serving God. And these concerns that Nehemiah has, he discovers that he didn't even know how deep this went. Let's look ahead to verses 17 through 19. These are later verses in the passage of chapter 6, but they tell us that the truth will eventually come out. Verse 17 says, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to this man Tobiah. Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Era. His son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berkiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and they reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. I jumped ahead a little bit because it gives us the picture. It seems that after Nehemiah finished the wall, this story came to light. This whole time that he was working, trying to serve God, there was connection, secret communication going on between some of the Jewish nobles and this man, Tobiah. These priests had intermarried with him and his son. Their families were bounded together in oath. And so they tried to influence Nehemiah. When they were with him, they're like, you know, I know, know that guy Tobiah says these things, but he has your best interest in heart. Really, you should listen to what he's doing. He's doing some great things over in Ammon. You should really have a conversation with him. And then they also tried to undermine Nehemiah by telling Tobiah what he said in private. Like, well, Nehemiah said this. I think they're going to work on this part of the wall next week. The implication here is there's many more letters that were going back and forth than we even have in this book. But it didn't stop the work. And afterwards, this truth was revealed. Jesus says in Luke 8 that nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest or revealed, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. You can't hide secrets from God. Eventually, truth will be known. Nehemiah made decisions. He acted, trusting in God to bring his justice. And time proves that he had made the right decision, even though it was very difficult in the moment. A decision that's difficult and hard, but is the right decision, is much better than a decision that is quick and easy, but is ultimately wrong. Well, despite all this opposition, despite everything that he had to go through, Nehemiah, the Israelites, they persevere and they eventually experience the sweet victory of finishing what God had called them to do. They get to this point of sweet victory. And the first truth that we see in this victory is that sweet victory is accomplished by God. If God brings a moment of victory in our life, it's something that he has done. He is the one who accomplished it. Let's look again at verses 15 and 16 in our text. We read it right before uh, we sang our last song. They say, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid. They fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. We're told the wall is finished. After all this work, it is finally done, and it only took 52 days. We're told this is the month of Elul. It was probably early October in our calendar. This is less than six months 
after this whole thing began, when Nehemiah had a conversation with the Persian king. It's been less than six months since then before he said, this is what I like to do, and then the work was done. And now we read this, and it might say, okay, great, they, they built a wall, but, but think about this. The wall of this city had been in ruins for almost 150 years. Almost 150 years this wall had been in ruins. That's over half as long as our country has existed. This wall had been in ruins. And they rebuilt it in less than two months. Nehemiah's journey he took from Persia to Jerusalem probably took longer than that. This is an incredible work for, especially this day and age, almost 2,000 years ago. We don't know exactly where the wall is. It sizes things. Some estimate it may have been as long as two and a half miles long, 12 feet tall, and maybe eight feet wide. That's a very impressive feat of engineering. Well, let's try to make a, a comparison. Now, I mean no offense whatsoever to the good folks at PennDOT. No offense at all, okay? Uh, but over here on 83, they've been working on that for a long time, and I don't think that's quite two and a half miles long. Now, that, that doesn't mean anything against them. They're doing something very different, but I just want you to think about that comparison. They've taken over a year over there. They built this wall in 52 days, less than two months. That's how miraculous this work is. As Pastor Chuck Swindoll said, if honor is at stake, if good principle is at stake, if you know you're accomplishing something that would please the Lord, then never, never quit. And when they see this miraculous work, their enemies who have been trying so hard to stop them, they respond with a reaction of fear. When our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their esteem. They wonder, who is this God who does such great things for his people. They feared God would make Judah a threat to them. They were humiliated because all of their threats, all their plots had come to nothing. They became disheartened. They fell in their self-esteem. They lost their confidence in their own power. Like, I really thought we could stop them. I don't know how they did this. There must be something to that God of theirs. He must have helped them do this. They were challenged with the reality that God is real and that he works for his people. And that should challenge us too. God is real. He does exist. He does great things in and through those who know him. And we all have to ask ourselves, how do we respond to that? Do we ignore this God, push him aside, or do we listen to what he says, how he tells us that we are separated from him and we need a savior? Do we listen to him? As for the Israelites, they could know this work was done. It was accomplished with God's help and his power. He was the one who brought victory, success, and joy to his people. One of the Psalms is talking about something similar. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion or Jerusalem, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. And then look at this. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And the psalmist talks again, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. When God worked, it taught his people that God is ultimately responsible for our successes. When we experience a victory that moves forward, God's kingdom and his purposes, God is the one who deserves the praise 
And when He works in our lives, people notice. And so that means if we're doing God's work, then at the end of the day, nothing is impossible. We can persevere in it because He is the one who accomplishes victory for us. The greatest way He did that was He accomplished our salvation. We didn't work to earn it, but Christ died on our behalf. He paid our sin. He restored us to God. It's not something we do to get right with God. He accomplished it for us. And it doesn't stop there. Any spiritual victory we have in our life, when we grow in our faith, overcome sin and temptation, able to share the good news with someone, that is something that he is accomplishing. Scholar Mervyn Brenneman said, the best answer to opposition is to keep working and fulfill God's will. Because if we do that, others will see God's power. This is a great high note. And if I were a better preacher, I would end here. What a great way to end and go out the door. But, but the passage doesn't quite end there because this passage reminds us that true victory is still to come. We may have moments where we experience victory here on earth, but true victory is still to come. As it, the text rolls into chapter 7, it wasn't broken up with chapters and verses like we have it. So let's look at 7 verses 1 through 5 of this true victory still to come. Nehemiah says, now when the wall had been built and I set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut, bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem some at their guard posts, some in front of their own homes. Verse 4 tells us why. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So Nehemiah has an idea, or God gives him one. Then my God put in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I also found the book of genealogy of those who came up, who came back to Jerusalem at first. And I found this written in it. So the wall of Jerusalem is finished. It should be a moment of celebration, but the work is not quite done. In fact, if you flip at, at Nehemiah here, you'll notice we're only halfway through the book. The wall's finished, but Nehemiah's task isn't over. He still needs to defend the city and populate the city with God's people. And he needed good people in charge. He needed those who were faithful and God-fearing, who could serve with honor and teach others to do the same. He had to use the gatekeepers, singers, musicians, Levites who were there in the temple to finish the work, to set, hang the doors. And then he appoints some good leaders, his brother Hanani and a man Hananiah, who was a governor, a commander, a leader over the castle, citadel, the fortress of the soldiers. He makes them leaders because they had the necessary leadership qualifications. They were men of faithful integrity. They did what was right, and they were God-fearing. They valued God first and foremost. They had their priorities straight. They're men like Nehemiah. Nehemiah describes himself this way the last time we were in the book. He says, the former governors, the old people who were in charge, they laid heavy burdens on the people. They took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver, and even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. He valued God's work more than raising money for himself. 
And so even though the wall is finished, caution is still necessary. It's a very difficult city to defend. They needed a plan. And so he gives them a plan about not opening the doors when the sun is hot, or perhaps it's talking about closing them when people are resting, and more guards were needed in the city. He needed people up on the wall. He needed people guarding near their houses. Another issue verse 4 tells us is that the city is mostly empty. They'd been so focused on the wall, they worked really hard, they got it done in 52 days, but there's no houses on the inside. It's not really protecting anything at the moment. And so Nehemiah feels led by God. You know, I need to make a count, a registration of the people, so that I can try to inspire them to repopulate the city of Jerusalem, encourage them to move into Jerusalem. To do that, he starts with the first record of God's people, the first group that came back. And we're not going to read it, but that's verses 6 through 73 in chapter 7, is a, a recopy of that first list of people who came back from the exile. We actually saw it in Ezra chapter 2. They're almost exactly the same. It's a reminder of how far the people had come. When this group here in chapter 7, when they first came back to the promised land, there was no temple. Jerusalem was in ruins, but now they have rebuilt the temple. Now they have rebuilt the walls of their city. All that is left is for God's people to finally come back home. This is the work that Nehemiah has left in front of him in the rest of this book. And it shows us that even in this moment of victory, they finish the wall. When we have a moment of, I'm doing something for God, this is amazing, we also have to acknowledge that we will not reach a day on this side of eternity when we finish everything we need to do. Not get to the point of, yes, I've done everything, now I can kick back and relax. Our true ultimate victory is still to come in front of us. And what does that look like? Well, the very last book of the Bible tells us. In the book of Revelation, John writes, says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This true and ultimate victory is talking about Christ's return, the establishment of his kingdom. This is the true victory. We may experience moments of sweet victory of, God, I was able to tell someone about my faith. Oh, God, I've, I've learned now how to read your word more. And that is a moment of joy, but it should just be a taste in our mouth. This great feeling I feel now of doing something for God, that's a feeling we'll enjoy for all eternity when he returns and he accomplishes his victory. We should long for that return. If we don't, we should wonder, do I know him and have a relationship with him? Do I know this God who does these great things for his people? And if you don't, I encourage you to talk to me or someone else and say, how, how can I know this God? And I'll tell you, what you need to know is that he is the one who shows his love for you. His son died to pay for sin. And if you turn away from your sin and you put your faith and trust in him, say that I want him to be the one who accomplishes victory in my life, then you will know him. But if we do know him, well, then we can thank him for all that he has done for us. We can celebrate what he's accomplished in our lives, how he helps us grow. 
We can celebrate what he did to save us. That's what we're going to do in a few minutes when we have the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating what he has done for us. It's a feast of celebration. But before we get to that, let's take a moment to praise him for what he has done because he is worthy of our praise and worship.